We're continuing a study this morning that we began last week. It's on the seven sign miracles in John's gospel. John gives us seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed as John leads us up to the ultimate sign, which is that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And John has chosen these signs for a specific purpose. He says so near the end of his gospel in John 20, verses 30 and 31. And that purpose is so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And not just so that we may believe but also that by believing, you may have life in his name. So last week, we looked at Jesus' first miracle, changing water into wine. And and there was a lot in that miracle that revealed much about Jesus as the Christ and what Jesus came to accomplish as the Christ, the Messiah. This week, the miracle that we're going to focus on deals with belief. What is belief? Now, that's an important question if believing is what leads to having life in his name. And what's it going to take for you to believe. That's also wrapped up in this sign that we're going to look at this morning. So, what's it going to take for you to believe? There's a story about a man who was on his way to an important meeting. And he arrived in the parking lot of the building where the meeting was going to be held. And he couldn't find a parking spot. Now, it was critical that he arrive on time. He had a lot riding on that meeting. But the entire parking lot was full, and there wasn't anywhere else that he could park. So he began to pray. He prayed, God, please provide somewhere for me to park. And he even started to bargain with God. If you do this for me, I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll give up this vice. I'll give some money to charity. And at that moment, a car backed out of a prime spot right next to the front door. And the car drove away, leaving this perfect space for him. So he says, never mind, God. I just found a spot. (laughs) We will try anything if we're desperate enough, including prayer. But do we really believe? What's it going to take for you to believe? Since belief is fundamental to John's stated purpose, it's not surprising that John deals with it directly in one of the first miracles that he chose to use in this gospel. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 4. 
toward the end of the chapter where this miracle takes place. We're going to start in verse 43, just a few verses before the miracle, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. John 4, verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, I didn't mean to suggest earlier in the introduction that this was the first time that John talked about belief in his gospel. John's been weaving this thread of belief from the very beginning. In his prologue, in the first chapter, in verse 12, John writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So right up front, John told us, believing in Jesus' name corresponds with receiving him and becoming children of God. Or the miracle that we considered last week. The immediate result of it was belief. In John 2, verse 11, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, not many people were aware of that miracle, at least at that time, but those who were, and specifically his disciples, believed as a result of the sign. After that, Jesus and his disciples went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And while he was there, according to John 2, verse 23, 
Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. While Jesus was still in Jerusalem, a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, came to him. And and this is where Jesus said to the man that a man must be born again or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And as he was explaining that to Nicodemus, Jesus spoke what has become the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Belief divides those who receive eternal life from those who perish. At the end of John 3, in verse 36, John, the apostle, the writer of this gospel, is summing up the testimony of another John, John the Baptist. And he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. After this, Jesus left Judea to travel back to Galilee. And on his way, he was passing through Samaria. And he met a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. The woman wanted to debate with Jesus about the propriety of worshiping on a mountain as opposed to worshiping in the temple. And Jesus said to her in John 4, 21, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Believing as long as it is the right belief is what's important. And the woman did believe. And not just the woman, but many of the Samaritans. In John 4, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And then in verse 41, and many more believed because of his word. And it wasn't just some vague belief that there was something special about Jesus or that he could do signs or that he was a good teacher who told the truth. In verse 43, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus stayed in Samaria then for two days with these Samaritans who believed in him as the Savior of the world. And that's where our text picks up this morning. In verse 43, it says, and the two, or after the two days, he departed for Galilee. And it gives us the reason that he left for Galilee. And it's a curious reason. It says he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, most other translations translate hometown as his own 
country. The word literally means fatherland, although it can refer to a town or a region as well. In context here, it seems to refer to Galilee, to the region. John certainly wouldn't mean that Samaria, where Jesus was, or anywhere in Samaria, was Jesus' hometown or his own country. Jesus wasn't leaving Samaria because that was his home country, but that they didn't honor him as a prophet there. It wasn't his home country. And yet they were, in fact, honoring him and believing in him. Now, it could also be that John is referring to Nazareth in particular, the city that Jesus had been raised in. But but that would really have the same idea as Galilee. Essentially, Jesus was going home because they didn't honor him there in his home country. He's going back to Galilee because the Galileans don't believe in him. In Matthew, uh, Matthew 13, verse uh, 57, Jesus quotes a similar saying. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. But here, it has the opposite thrust. In Matthew, the point is that Jesus refrains from doing miracles because of their unbelief. In John, he's going to Galilee, in part, to do miracles there because they don't believe. The difference is in the timing. In Matthew, it's later on in Jesus' ministry. They've had the opportunity to believe in his hometown, and they've rejected him. In John, this is earlier. And here Jesus is going to Galilee to give them that opportunity to believe in him. In verse 45, it says, When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they were happy to see him. Because they'd seen the miracles, the miracles that he did in Jerusalem. Because they had been in Jerusalem too. But let's be clear. They're welcoming him back as a miracle worker. Not as the Messiah, the Son of God. It doesn't say anything here about them believing in him. They're just looking for a show. And maybe for someone to solve a few of their problems. So that's the setting for this sign. Jesus is back in Galilee, and the people are happy to have him. But there's no indication that they have any kind of meaningful belief in him like those Samaritans had. In verse 46, it says... So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. John wants, us, wants to remind us of that. He wants us to remember that Jesus is not just a healer, not just a worker of miracles. 
He is the Christ. And the sign that he did earlier in Cana testifies to that. And here we're introduced to an official. Now, most translations say a royal official. And the word has that meaning. So this would have been one of Herod's officials. Herod was the king or or tetrarch. He ruled over Galilee. He's the one who would soon have John the Baptist arrested and then eventually beheaded. This is also the Herod who would preside over one of Jesus' trials after Jesus was arrested and before he was crucified. Herod's capital was in Tiberias, and that was about five miles from Capernaum. Now, this royal official, he would have been privileged. He would have been wealthier, and he would have had advantages, being one of Herod's officials, that most people in Galilee would not have had. The man's circumstances are the kind that often lead someone to self-reliance or at least a reliance on earthly means. This man could afford things that most people couldn't. He had access that most people didn't have. And money and access and privilege and position can solve a lot of problems in life, or or at least it seems to. And it can create in a person a false sense of security. And and that seems great, that, that security, until you encounter a problem that money and access and privilege and position can't solve. And then the walls come tumbling down around you. Paul Allen He was one of the the world's richest men. He had a net worth of more than $20 billion. He founded Microsoft with Bill Gates. He owned the Seattle Seahawks. He owned the Portland Trailblazers and, and just about anything else that he wanted. But he got cancer. And all of his money couldn't cure him. He died at the relatively young age of 65. And all of his billions couldn't do him any good. The official from Capernaum is in a similar spot to this when we meet him. Except it's his son who was ill. And it wasn't a minor illness. The boy was dying. And none of his father's money or access had been able to help him. The official had presumably exhausted every other option. And he was desperate. And this is what God does. When God is preparing to reach you, he tills your soil by bringing a trial into your life that you can't handle on your own. He strips away every pretense of your own capabilities. He puts you in a position where you are forced to recognize 
that you don't have the ability to solve your own problems. And he often uses this temporal helplessness as a precursor to show you how spiritually helpless you are as well. And that's all part of his grace as he draws you to himself. So in verse 47, it says, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. He heard that Jesus was in Cana, and no doubt he'd heard about the miracles that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. Maybe he'd even heard about Jesus turning water to wine. So he decided to go to Cana to find Jesus. Cana is about 16 miles from Capernaum. On foot, a person could make the trip in a day. And as a royal official, this man likely had access to a horse. So he hurried to Cana. And when he found Jesus, he asked him to come with him and heal his son. I want you to notice here, he seems to make an assumption. He thinks that Jesus would need to come with him in order to heal his son. It probably never occurred to him that this could happen in any other way. So he prescribes to Jesus, at least in part, the means by which Jesus should heal his son. And and isn't that often how we pray? Do this, God, so that I can have this outcome? Give me a better job so that I can pay my bills? Change that person's heart so that we can be reconciled. But the means that we prescribe may not be the means that God wants to use. And our presumptions about what we think needs to happen may indicate a lack of the kind of belief or faith that pleases God. The official asked Jesus to come down and heal his son. Because that's what he thought needed to happen for his son to be healed. Now, listen to Jesus' response in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I expect this confused the official a little bit. He hadn't come to Jesus looking for a reason to believe. He wasn't asking Jesus for proof that what Jesus said was true or that Jesus was who he said he was. He wasn't looking for signs or wonders for their own sake. All he wanted was for his son to live. But when Jesus said this, he wasn't referring to the man specifically. The word you in in both cases, in, in Jesus' statement, is plural. Jesus isn't saying, unless you, sir, 
the royal official, unless you see signs and wonders. He's saying, unless you people, the Galileans, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, most translations treat it that way. They say, you people. Jesus is commenting here on the attitude of the people as a whole, which leads to the kind of approach that he sees in this man. They don't believe in him as the savior of the world, as the Samaritans earlier in the chapter had. For them, he's a miracle worker to provide a show and to fix their earthly problems. So their focus is on signs and wonders, not on the real substance of who Jesus is. Jesus, for his part, is prepared to show them signs and wonders. And some will believe, and others will not. The official, though, is still focused on his son and says to Jesus in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. And here we see another assumption that he makes. He assumes that once the child dies, it will be too late. He didn't understand what Jesus was capable of. And maybe we can't blame him for that. But whatever limited belief he may have had, it didn't extend to Jesus being able to resurrect the dead. We'll see that later in John's Gospel. Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead after he's been dead for four days and after he's been buried in the tomb. And then Jesus will rise from the dead himself. Jesus could have restored this child's life even after he had died. But that was beyond the father's belief at this point. Well, Jesus had had his say about the belief of the Galileans. So now he addresses the official directly. Jesus said to him in verse 50, Go, your son will live. Jesus did the miracle, right there. He did it in his way, on his terms, by his means. And it says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. So the the official's making progress. He believed this word. He believed that his son would live. It doesn't say he believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world, or the Christ, or the Son of God, but he believed this. And he didn't ask for a sign as proof. Now, I think many of us would have. We'd have said, give us a sign, Lord, so that I can be certain. Do something for me now that I can see, so that I can have assurance as I travel home. Much later in John's Gospel, after Jesus' resurrection, the other disciples told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, that he was alive in John 20, 25. And Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands 
in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. So John's still talking about belief all the way at the end of his gospel. And Thomas said, unless I have something that I can't deny, I'm not going to believe. Eight days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas along with the other disciples. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, sometimes God gives us compelling signs to help our unbelief. Sometimes he shows us things that we can't deny. But it's always better, more blessed, to believe without the need for that. So the man left, believing that his son would live. As he was heading home, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that the hour, that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. It confirmed what should surprise no one, that the boy was healed when Jesus said he was healed. Jesus spoke the words, and it was done. Distance and time were no hindrance for Jesus. Sickness and disease were not beyond his ability. And now it says, he himself believed and all his household. The royal official and all those in his home believed. Earlier in verse 50, it said that the man believed, specifically he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him about his son. This is a different belief in verse 53. This is the belief that John has been talking about from the beginning of the gospel. This is the belief that happens when you receive him and are given the right to become children of God. This is the belief that saves us from perishing and leads to eternal life. This is the belief that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And the father of the boy believed and all his household with him. The last verse of John 4, verse 54, says, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this may confuse some. This was not the second sign that Jesus did overall. 
It clearly says in John 2, verse 23, that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing there in Jerusalem. And in John 3, verse 2, Nicodemus cited the signs that Jesus was doing when Nicodemus came to him. So what does John mean when he says that this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee? The limiting factor here is that he was back in Galilee. This was his second sign in Galilee. Jesus had returned to Galilee to address their unbelief, and he used signs to do it. And this was the second of those signs, the first being earlier when he had turned water to wine. So the issue for us is belief. What is belief? There are different kinds of belief. And not every one of them leads to salvation. As James says in chapter 2, verse 19 of his letter, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Not every belief saves. There is a belief that's at least implied in the Galileans when Jesus came back to Galilee. But it's a, it's a cultural belief. They're happy to associate themselves with Jesus. He's a Galilean. They're Galileans. They, they like that. They can get on board with him. He made a big splash when he was in Jerusalem. He does signs and wonders. He's a good teacher. And it's possible to be a cultural Christian like that today, to embrace an association with Jesus, identifying as a Christian in a way that fits how I see myself. Maybe it fits with my basic values or with my politics, at least in the cultural way that I experience Christianity. And so I'm happy to identify as a Christian. But there isn't much more to it than that. Perhaps the royal official, when he first believed Jesus, that his son would live, maybe he takes it a step further than being a mere cultural Christian. He heard something, and he believed something. He even acted on what he believed. And he trusted Jesus to do something for him as he left and returned home to his son. But at that point, it was still just a selective belief that missed the most important truth about Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus is God, and he is the Savior of the world. And that is the belief that leads to eternal life. And it's not just an intellectual agreement to a teaching, but a belief that by faith, Jesus will save you. That's where John is taking us 
in this gospel. He's walking us through these signs in the early part of the gospel and leading us to the cross where Jesus will die to pay the penalty for our sin. His death was the pivotal event in all of history. When he died on the cross, he accomplished everything that the Godhead had determined to do in eternity past. And for every one of us, that means if we put our trust in him, if we believe that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world, and we trust him to save us from our sin, he will do so. And we will have eternal life. Because he lived and he died. And he rose from the dead. Jesus asked us to remember his death. He asked us to do so in a specific way. He did this for the first time with his disciples on the night before he died. He gave them bread to represent his body, which he willingly sacrificed for our sake. And he gave them the cup to represent his blood. Sin cannot be forgiven without the shedding of blood. So Jesus shed his innocent blood so that our sins could be forgiven. And he gave us the bread and the cup so that we would remember what he did. So that we would remember what he endured for our sake. The Lord gave this remembrance to believers to those who believe in him, who believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and who trust in him to save them from their sin. If that's you, if you have received him and believe in him and have been given the right to be called children of God, if you are born again, and you believe in him so that you will not perish, but have eternal life, if you confess that he is the Savior of the world, then you are invited to partake this morning. But do so in a worthy manner, consistent with the purpose that Jesus had in giving this to us, and that is to remember him in his death. Don't make this into something else, or cheapen it by partaking flippantly, without really considering our Lord and what he endured for our sake. So I'm going to pray, and then Tim and I will distribute first the bread, and then once everyone who's participating has been served, I will read a passage from Scripture and we will partake together. And then we'll do the same with the cup. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for all your son accomplished by his righteous life and his atoning death. Father, thank you that you have made us the beneficiaries of what he accomplished. And Father, now we set out to do what what he asked of us in obedience to him, to remember his death, to focus on him and what he did. Father, thank you for the bread. Thank you for the body, Jesus' body, that it represents. Father, thank you that he willingly sacrificed it for our sake. Father, thank you for the cup that represents his blood. Father, thank you for the the perfect life that he lived so that his blood is innocent, that he had no sin of his own to pay for and was able to pay the price for our sin with his blood. Father, as we partake this morning, It is our goal to glorify him that he would be exalted by our remembrance of what he did. In Jesus' name, amen.